Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 276, and I had a conversation with Jason Rogers. He's a two-time Olympian, American saber fencer. He won a silver medal in the Beijing Olympics. He is the founder and writer of Mandate Letters, a contributor to men's health on a regular basis where he explores topics of masculinity and what it's like to be a man in today's culture and society. He talks about his own issues and explores various uh, topics surrounding toxic masculinity, sexuality, uh, just finding one's place in the world as a man, that kind of thing. Really interesting guy, phenomenal writer. I've read a bunch of his articles now and uh, really great stuff. So definitely check out the links page to find your way to see his work. Uh, It's really quite something. I want to take a moment to let Ramona Holloway know that we're all thinking of her. She lost her mom, Wheezy, this week. Um, She was on episode 254 talking about her mom's dementia and what it's like being a caregiver to somebody with dementia. And so I, I talked to Ramona this morning and just wanted to know that we're all thinking of her and sending love and, uh, Yeah, just wanted to let everybody know that her mom passed away this week. Okay, in other news, um, halfway through the new season of Ted Lasso, and my gosh, if there's ever a show that can pick you up, it's that one. I know it's cool to make fun of people that love Ted Lasso because, you know, the joy stealers are out there. But I got to say, it's a heartwarming, it's such a perfect description of it. I feel good when I watch that show. Uh, and and you can't take that away from me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right, in other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Facebook and Instagram. My own personal social media is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under Susan Ruthism. You can find Hey Human Podcast on all the podcast places. Obviously, you're listening to it right now. Uh, but if you want to go check out heyhumanpodcast.com, you will find the links page where every episode gets its own pile of links about books or articles or just general information about my guest. Check that out. Wealth of information there. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to sign up for the mailing list, SusanRuth.com is where you do that. S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H dot com. And you can find out more about me, all my other projects and things that I do, uh, interviews with me from that people interview me instead of the other way around. I put all that stuff up there. In fact, I've got a new interview up there from... Uh, Dove Barron and his Curiosity Bites podcast. I will put those links on the SusanRuth.com site for sure. Okay, what else? Uh, You can also find the storefront where you can get merch, t-shirts, pencil cases, tote bags, that kind of thing to help support Hey Human and to, you know, give a little swag. All sorts of fun things on the store. You can also donate if you think Hey Human should continue to be ad-free. I don't have a Patreon or anything like that. At least I don't yet. There's no paywall. There's no ads. So if you love what you hear and you feel like supporting it monetarily, definitely check out the donation 
button. I think it just says support there on heyhumanpodcast.com. And I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. All right. I think that's about it. Oh, you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I answer every email and I look forward to hearing from you. All right. That's it. Thank you for listening. Uh, be well, be kind, take care of each other. And here we go. Jason Rogers, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, it's yeah. a pleasure to be here. So you are in California proper, I take it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I actually grew up in Los Angeles. Unicorn! Yeah, I know. And left after high school, and then went to college in Ohio, moved to New York, moved to London, and then now my wife and I are back here after many, many years away, but I've been here about four years. So growing up here, is that how you know our mutual friend Jeff? Through fencing, actually. Ah, we will get into that. Yeah. Shout out to Jeff, though, for introducing us. Yes. Thank you, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. (laughs) If you're listening, which you probably are, uh, this isn't live, by the way. I'm recording this, but we're going to pretend that he heard us in real time. He heard us. I heard, I felt him say thank you. Somewhere in the force. Yeah. He gave me a a high five virtually there you go in the spiritual realm there you go exactly uh childhood what was it like for you what i I know a little uh spoiler alert for everyone you were an olympian it's very exciting uh i imagine that growing up with that on the horizon it was an intense childhood or how was that you know it was it was both intense and not intense so i grew up as i mentioned in la specifically west la um I was incredibly fortunate. I went to, I'm an only child, so I had, you know, I relished in the attention of my parents and their two lovely, wonderful human beings uh, supported me in every way that they possibly could. Sent me to private school. I went to private school over in West Hollywood and then later moved to another one over in Brentwood. So uh, incredibly privileged in that regard. Um, yeah, and I started fencing at a pretty early age, about 11, um, at a facility kind of over in the old Helms Bakery building, which is this beautiful sort of L.A. historic landmark. Uh, that center no longer exists, and it's all furniture companies. But it was a very cool place to kind of be immersed as a young kid. There was, you know, coat of coats of arms on the wall and pictures of old fencers and, you know, like black and white images of the Princess Bride and just all of the... I don't know, like arcana of fencing that would draw somebody in, you know, knights and shining armor and things like that. Um, and I had a knack for it kind of in the very beginning. How did you find out that, though? It seems like a rather obscure sport to think, unless you are watching The Princess Bride and you think, oh, I can, I can be the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, I mean, it is, I should point out, like not just a random sport to get into, in the United States, but a very random sport to get into in LA. There are some centers out here, but you know, the East coast is, is kind of the epicenter for fencing as a sport. An epi, epicent, epi, no, sorry. I'm just not even going to do the joke. <laughs> I trip over myself. We had to, there'll be a minimum of six fencing puns. Yeah, as my brain went, don't do that, Susan. I had to, I tripped over myself. <laughs> That's okay. I permit them. I support that. I appreciate it. I'm a pun guy. So okay, make all the puns. Oh you Lord. Like. Um, but yeah, so I, I actually almost quit fencing immediately because uh, it was it's very technical. It's a very, very technical sport. And I was like 11 and like probably somewhat ADD and just like, this is no thanks. Um, and then they switched me from one coach to another. 
and I met a man named Daniel Costin, uh, who's from Romania. Uh, and he was just like the coolest dude around, just funny, this big bear of a man, bearded, you know, deep booming voice, always cracking jokes. And I was like, Oh, like this guy is great. I don't know about fencing. This guy is awesome. And I did it for about a year and a half or so started like doing little competitions here and there. And then I went to my first national competition, uh, for like the under 13 age category. And I won. (laughs) Did that surprise you? Did you have an idea that you were going to be good at something like this? I had no expectations. I I mean, I don't know what expectations really are at that age, but I don't think I had a sense that I was really good, and I don't think I had a sense that I was bad. I was just doing something I was enjoying, and then all of a sudden this kind of measuring stick came and showed me like, oh, I I guess I have some something here. Does that mess you up? Because I think if you're doing something for the joy of just doing it and enjoying it and having a ball and just happen to be great at it, and then someone says, oh, you can win at this, or you can get an award for this, or you can be the best in your class or the best in the world. I mean, that's that's got to be a lot of pressure. So initially, it, I think it's helpful because it becomes a positive feedback loop that you know you study harder when you get an A kind of situation and so for me that was like oh like I like this and I'm good at this and it's fun to win tournaments and and then so it became this like you know uh, momentum creator eventually in my career the measuring stick became an oppressive force and something that I had to learn to deal with and to develop a lot of kind of tools especially when it came to the Olympics and then my second Olympics, that period in between, you know, my first games in 2004 in Athens and the second games in 2008 that I had to really learn how to adjust my, the framing, you know, of how I saw that kind of stuff. When you say to learn the tools, was that something that someone helped you with or did you come to that of your own volition? A a lot of, uh, I mean, both. I sort of, um, without skipping too far ahead, my first Olympics was a really challenging Olympics. Uh, I went... <laughs> That's just a funny sentence. I'm sorry. <laughs> really? True. Was the Olympics challenging? <laughs> How weird. <laughs> weird that you would go to, you know, this sporting event... Uh, With the greatest people in the world. And watched by millions and had a difficult time. Um, so bizarre. So weird. Anyway, that's my unique story. Um, uh, no, I... Uh, I guess to put it in perspective, like you go into it with the expectation that you, or not expectation, with the, you know, the aspiration to to do well. Like every athlete dreams of winning a medal at the Olympics, and it's the culmination of your career. You know, of of what at that point in time had been a decade of training, and uh, I went into my first match. Um, I was competing in two separate events. One was a individual event or like sort of Jason Rogers represents the United States. And then I later, a few days later, would fence for the team, sort of like me and three other guys representing the U.S. Is that more pressure to be representing the whole of America in a team way? Because you have people to let down besides... Yes. Yeah, okay. All depends on your perspective. Um, And... There are some fencers that really rise to the occasion in team events, and there are some that rise to the occasion individual. And all depends on how you think about, um, yeah, how how those different 
environments and like sort of vectors of force like pressure uh, affect you so in some cases as an individual you're just like well if i lose i lose that's me it's on me no it doesn't impact anybody else and that allows people to thrive and then if you are in a team event it's like oh i don't want to let my teammates down and that becomes like something that drags you down conversely it can work the other way around if you think about like oh my teammates are there to lift me up you feel less pressure and you can take the type of risks that you need to take in order to perform at your best and then vice versa so it's all i mean sport this is going to be like the most reductionist thing you've ever heard me say but like it's all in the mind obviously it's the body and the training and but when you get to a certain level it's it's like it's like how do you how do you shape your perspective in a way that keeps the pressures at bay that continually allows you to kind of tap into your highest potential as an athlete and actualize that in moments where it's where it matters and that's obviously like when you're at a place like the olympics I had a neuroscientist on here a couple weeks ago, Dr. Moran Cerf, and he talked about how the brain and our general capacity is operating maybe at a certain percentage where it still has quite a lot of room to go because it doesn't want you to push yourself so hard. And then for elite athletes, they figured out how to push the brain beyond what its uh, fail-safe is. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's got to be true on some level. It's probably not exclusive to sports. It's probably like performance I'm sure. of all kind. Um, and I think that like there's probably some connective tissue between that and like focus. Because I think one of the things that a performer of any kind, but in particular an athlete, learns to develop is just the ability to focus on one thing and nothing else. Uh, or really a sort of a, like an interlocking system of things that are relevant to you and your sport, but blocking out the rest of the world. And then, yeah, so so to that extent, like you are maximizing your, I don't know what really the right word is, but your ability to sort of like uh, visualize something and make it happen. Like, I think that ultimately comes from being able to like really drill down your focus like a super magnifying glass on something. So as a little or a young man who's growing into becoming a champion person and you're hyper-focused and nothing else is, is at the forefront, what does that do to your childhood? Well, so, and this is what I was alluding to before, I had a very intense childhood and a very normal childhood simultaneously. And mm. I, had, I, I almost had two lives. So life one was just being a kid in high school um, and, you know, taking tests and writing papers. And I mean, my school is like a super college prep school. So I had a lot of schoolwork and I wasn't really cut a lot of breaks there. So I just was like everybody else. Um, and then on the other hand, I would, you know, sort of like flit off to France for the weekend and Italy for the weekend and Poland for the weekend. And I would go to the junior world championships, you know, every year during my birthday, because it was in April for two weeks. April and birthday. Hey, Aries. Wait, I'm a Taurus, April 23rd. Okay. I'm 14. So, ah, hey. um, so in, in that sense, um, yeah, I, like there was this like bifurcation between who these two identities. And so I felt very much like a normal high school kid. And at the same time, like, Oh, I'm on this, I'm doing something very special special and i knew that it was special oddly enough it wasn't really recognized by my 
high school and peers until I really got some momentum. For example, I didn't, I had to do most athletes at my school. If they were playing varsity sports, they would like get to not do physical education. I was just going to ask you about PE. Did they make you do PE? They made me do PE until I was in uh, finished 10th grade. And so I did like, yeah, I was like, but I'm like on the national team for my sport. And I'm like, I'm being funded to travel around the world. I don't want to like, play dodgeball. Right. I was like, can I maybe like get a free period instead? And they're like, no. And then finally, I think I got, oh uh, I think I got the United States Fencing Association to write a letter to my school and say that I was like an Olympic hopeful or something like that. And they were like, okay, fine. You can, you can not do PE. Um, classic. Yeah. Classic. Um, but you'll have to do Saturday school. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you're not getting a break on any of your papers, oh, and you're man. still going to do everything that everybody else did. Um, but yeah, and I think, um, so in that sense, it was it was a pretty normal childhood. I, I started at that age to start to, like, I don't think I was aware of it at the time, but I started to kind of have some anxiety-type stuff that was slowly bubbling underneath the surface, like, as, you know, like, I was in 10th grade and 11th grade, and... and you know, everybody was on the kind of hormone roller coaster and, and dating and experimenting with all that kind of hookup culture type stuff. I kind of shied away from that. And that, that was definitely a, a part of my development that I think probably is different from a lot of kids. And we can talk about that part too. Yeah, totally. Um, well, yeah. So I, I guess like, I mean, one of the, the biggest things that, um, came with being an Olympic athlete was a certain kind of expectation about who I thought I needed to be in the world, both as a person, but also as a man. And, um, you know, like, like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm like, I have to, I have to put forward this kind of image of, I don't know exactly what to describe it, what was, but like a strong, capable man. And for me, you know, when I was a teenager, like especially late teens kind of as I was finishing high school like sex relationships intimacy all that stuff did not come naturally to me you know my first girlfriend for example like it just I just kept having experience after experience with her where I would like struggle to perform sexually and I would feel really anxious about it and feel like all the shame like there was something wrong with me because every other person in high school was like having you know, a great old time just experimenting. Or at least they were saying they were. Exactly. (laughs) And that's right. And that, that is exactly (laughs) the point, which is that because you think other people are having normal experiences and you're not, you don't share that with other people. And so that must have fed in itself too, because I imagine to be at such an elite athlete and uh, with a sword, no less, if that's not a great metaphor and then have that other stuff being going on, that's, like a crazy irony totally and I compartmentalized it for years and just kind of took my focus off it and put all my focus on fencing I was like okay and school actually I was like became super studious about school when I went to college and um, that was that became the two sort of like aspects of my life that that I poured basically all of my energy and my creativity into because you know, one, I wanted to succeed in those realms, but two, because it became like a compensation mechanism for me because I felt sort of inadequate or not enough in that realm of my life. And, and so that was, that was an undercurrent that, you know, 
began in my teen years and and like sort of during my upbringing but then as I got into university and then when I started training full-time after college that's when I really started to take you know the reins and kind of affect my you know both my athletic and my personal life even more did you find the sport to be hyper masculine or was that self-imposed um fencing as compared to other sports i don't think i would say is hyper masculine but whenever you talk about the realm of competitive sport and men compared to the general populace that in and of itself is a hyper-masculine environment. Mm -hmm. So college, I mean, I went to Ohio State, which is a division one school. So it was a lot of dudes with a lot of, you know, swagger, uh, walking around campus. So I was sharing locker rooms and spaces and resources with a lot of those people. And so just by virtue of being, I think, adjacent to that kind of environment. And then in it, when I got to the sort of Olympic level, um, you know, it was this like constant, it's like the water that I would swim in. Did always. that make you question your sexuality at all? Or oh yeah, it, yeah, definitely. I think um, probably in my like mid, early mid twenties. For, for one, you know, when I was growing up, like I would get attention from the opposite sex, and then I wouldn't. In some cases, I would reciprocate it flirtatiously, but oftentimes I just kind of would stonewall because or pretend like I didn't. I wasn't aware of it because I didn't know how to respond because that part of my life I was so just not myself I didn't know who I was in that arena um and so a lot of people would say like oh like oh he must not you know he must be gay or he must not know who he is sexually or whatever and so I think I heard that enough times that um I started to think like oh is that a question I should really be asking myself and you know, that sort of lingered under the, you know, sort of somewhere in my consciousness throughout my career. And then it w wasn't until a after my fencing career, like when I was like 26, 27, I was stopping. I hadn't stopped fencing, but I was stopping fencing. You know, I knew I was kind of like on my way out. Um, but I was like, yeah, I should really explore this. And I did. I dated some men and I was like, you know, like, this is really cool. These are wonderful people. Um, I understand like that I can now form connections uh, with people romantically, sexually, etc. I don't think this is me exactly. That doesn't self-identify. I don't self-identify as gay, but I definitely gave me an appreciation for sexuality as a spectrum and understanding that, you know, I can move through those spaces depending on, you know, who I meet. And it so happened that I met my now wife, and I was like, oh, this is a person I want to be with. Um, but I'm grateful for those experiences. You know, I'm grateful for that, like, uh, in a way that, that that issue invited me to challenge, I think, some of the pressures or gender norms that might have prohibited me from, I don't know, exploring that aspect of myself without that, you know, kick in the butt that I needed to be like, okay, I really should figure this out i feel like a lot of the hyper masculinity comes from a fear that if they don't put on that that jacket or that mask that they'll somehow be gay oh my god if i if i think this guy is intriguing or interesting or you know i like the shape of his body or whatever that and so they they compensate for it and 
you know, punch a guy in the testicles or whatever the hell men do. <laughs> totally. Totally. And and now that my like sort of work and writing concern masculinity or masculinities plural, it's it's so transparent, you know, or so easy to see that a lot of those unhelpful behaviors which are often sort of like classified as toxic masculinity, like those come from men being afraid of uh, being sort of put in the category of feminine. And so whether that be gay or a sissy or whatever, there's many labels that manifest for that kind of same, so that arena. But um, yeah, men constantly have to prove themselves or prove their masculinity to each other because it's other men who teach them what masculinity is and it's other men that police it as well mm, that's interesting and also the idea that being a bisexual person is off the because I, I hear the talk of the town that oh a guy who is bisexual is just waiting for is just like waiting for the last stop of gayville or whatever and mm-hmm. just like with women who are bisexual there the the answer is always it's always back to men it's always like oh she just she really likes guys but she dabbles in women mm-hmm Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me. Yeah, and I think bisexual men are definitely... Um, uh, I think there is still a stigma that is attached to them. I think a lot of bisexual men would say that um, because it is kind of like... Yeah, it's 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 perceived as a... As a... Um, yeah, as sort of like a, oh, you're just saying this because you don't want to say that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I would say, though, I actually don't identify as bisexual because that I want to leave space for the people that really do. I think mm-hmm. the way that I think about it is, you know, nine or eight or seven times out of ten, you know, if I live my life again and I met the person that I wanted to spend my life with, you know, probably more times out of, you know, like seven or seven or eight out of 10, I'd probably end up with a woman, but it could be a man. And I think that's what I mean when I say, like, I appreciate the gender spectrum, but I don't want to self-identify that way because I feel like I'm taking the oxygen away from the people who really do and who really want to vocalize that identity as their own. Yeah, I didn't get a sense that you identified as bisexual, especially, but I, I think it's great that you appreciate the spectrum of it all. It's sort of... If you grow up in a culture that tells you you're supposed to do a certain thing, like let's say I grew up in a culture that only ate sandwiches at that one particular sandwich store, great sandwiches, oh my God, best sandwiches you ever had in your life. And then someone says, well, I make sandwiches. Mm -hmm. Do you want to try my sandwich? Mm -hmm. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm really, this is my sandwich. And then you try that sandwich. You're like, holy shit, that's the best sandwich I've ever had. Or you're like, you know what? That was a good sandwich. Still like the sandwich I've been eating my whole life. Yeah. I know it's a terrible metaphor. But no, I mean, <laughs> but I think, and I think it's accurate in my case. And it's funny because it's like, there's no, there's, on one hand, I like, I'm like, I really don't want to clarify this because there really shouldn't be any need to. No, but on the other not. hand, and I think, I think it really does come back to like, um, you know, like just making sure that space and representation is being given to people for whom that is a core part of their identity 
Whereas for me, it beca- it's more peripheral and a part of my life experience. Totally. And I agree with you. And also, I don't know why it matters so much. Right. Now, I know that's part of your conversation and stuff that you write about and talk about and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will forever wonder why anyone cares who anyone sleeps with. As long as everyone is safe and, and not doing something uh, against someone's will. Yeah, absolutely. And that's true with any kind of anything um, that, that goes across the board. So No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But most of I mean, a lot of people in the world feel that they need to um, actively challenge or debunk yes. other people's ways of living because it's... It's a threat to their it's own. It's a threat to their own. I agree with Identity that. or way of life. Mm-hmm. Or religion or philosophy or, you know, or what their dad taught them. Right. Uh, let's get back to, so you graduated from high school and you were on a fast track, which was a, a long track, but we call it a fast track because yep. it's like... <laughs> fast and slow track. Yeah. Overnight. To, it took 10 years to be an overnight sensation or 20 years. Or right. Whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I graduated from high school. I went to... The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. On a scholarship? On a scholarship. For fencing or for? For fencing. Okay. Well, actually, it was like f- I don't half. know why I keep doing this. No, I, I like it. <laughs> I keep doing the on guard. We need some, you know, straws or something. I and know. We can joust. Um, yeah, I was actually half academic, half uh, athletic, and um, which is in part why I kind of became quite, I don't know, maybe studious is the right word in, in, in college, but... Yeah, I went, and it was funny because I had a really difficult um, decision, I don't know, sort of like path, you know, like a fork in the road at the end of high school where I had wanted wanted to go to Columbia, like for my, you know, entire sort of like uh, high school aspirational life where I was like thinking about college, and I was also in this private school environment, which very much sort of like... uh, brainwashes you into thinking that going to Ivy League schools are the only types of schools you can go to and you know applied and was very blessed to get in and then there was a coach that I had been working with in the summertime um, named Vladimir Nazimov and he's a he's a you know many time Olympic medalist Olympic gold medalist in fencing in my event and he was like, wait a second, why didn't you like apply to Ohio State? Or like, I had applied, but he's like, why aren't you taking Ohio State seriously? And I thought more about it and eventually kind of came to the conclusion, I really want to go to the Olympics. I want to try and go to the Olympics. And for me, I felt like going to New York City, going to what I would refer to as like sort of the fencing industrial complex. There's a lot of clubs in New York and a lot of talent and a lot of all my teammates that um, were also on the same pathway as me were, were training there. But I just felt this weird connection with him and he provided me with like the, I don't know, emotional support blanket that I think I needed. He was constantly being like, you're going to be the best in the world. You're going to be the best in the world. And I think I needed at that stage of my life that kind of like, um yeah someone like believing in me as much as I hoped I would eventually believe in myself and so I sort of like pivoted in the very last minute and I was like all right I'm gonna we're doing this I'm going to Ohio and I'm gonna figure this out um and I went and I was like oh my god it was a huge cult- like culture shock for me to be in Ohio and um to be in like football culture and um yeah, I was there for a year and a half. Then I ended up taking a year and a half off to train for the first Olympics and was just like full tilt training for, yeah, quite a long time. 
And yeah, it was really challenging actually <laughs> to do only one thing for basically 18 months. You know, you forget that when you're in high school or when you're in college, like and you're spinning a lot of plates, even though you're busy as hell, like you, you basically are able to shift your focus from one thing to the next. So if you're doing well in one thing, but not doing well in another, you can kind of like get good energy from the thing you're doing well in and be like, ah, well, okay, that thing's going to go okay later. You know, there's a sort of mental balancing act that you're able to do, even if you're just like swamped and exhausted. And what was interesting was that I thought I would have all this time to train and I would be, yeah, just free to like, just get better at fencing to get my mind in the right place for the Olympics. And it was like the worst year ever because all I did was get up, go to practice, come home, watch like reality TV because I was so exhausted I couldn't do anything else. And if I had a bad practice, I just would stew on it, you know, and ruminate about like, oh no, like I had a bad practice. Like, what if I don't make the Olympics? What, you know, and so everything became about this one question, this one threshold that I had to cross. And it was tough. It was like really, really tough. And I didn't have at that point the mental tools that you develop. Um, or should develop as a young athlete to kind of like reframe and to understand like how to be mindful of the feelings that you're having in your body that result from these types of like um, cyclical thoughts that can come up and really drag you down. It sounds like you're not the only one though. A lot of the mental health talk that's been going around this Olympics that perhaps you're not alone in that struggle. It sounds like it's everybody is dealing with that on some level. Definitely, yeah. And I think, I mean, that's one thing that I'm really glad that that got a lot of airtime this Olympics, um, and actually to a certain degree prior to the Olympics, because there was a documentary that Michael Phelps produced and was in, with, along with a lot of other really, you know, sort of famous Olympians, um, like Sean White and Sasha Cohen and, and others, talking about the, I mean, what they sort of called like a, you know, a mental health epidemic among Olympians because there have been some very prominent suicides of Olympians and um, just dealing with the pressure that comes with being put on that stage, kind of like turning yourself into a performance machine and when the machine isn't working properly, you know, the type of um, sorrow and shame and, you know, things that can come with that. And then worst of all, the the incapacity that is felt by many Olympians to, you know, ask for help. You know, it's like, they're like, I have to put up this, this sort of like fierce front. And if I show any weakness or vulnerability, it comp compromises me as a competitor. And, you or know. Or my teammates or right. the nation. Well, and, and competitors and teammates are often the same people, which is mm. why it's very tricky. Ooh, that is tricky. Right. So, you know, you, you the people that you travel and compete with are often vying for the same spot that you want. And then when you make it, you and whoever else made it become a team. So they may be friends. They may, you know, they're friends, competitors, you know, that is tricky. and teammates all at once. And so that's, that dynamic becomes really hard to understand like when to make yourself vulnerable and when to not make yourself vulnerable. Did you form bonds with, people then or did you find yourself sort of from your upbringing 
keeping them a bit of a distance and focusing just on what you were doing. I more I bonded with people earlier on because I don't think I, um, I didn't think about that. The chess match didn't really start to <laughs> unfold in my head until I, in, until adulthood, young adulthood, my sort of, you know, twenties. I would say. Um, you look 20 now, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I keep going like, how old could this guy be? He's talking about his 20s like they were so long ago. <laughs> I'm 38. Okay, you look way younger than that. Oh, thanks. Uh, Appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I so I, I did have some very close friendships that I, you know, I didn't treat them like any, any different from any of my other friends. Um, that being said, you know, as a young man, you know, making yourself vulnerable in general is a hard task. So, but I wasn't, being any more or less vulnerable with them than I was with friends back home. I think as I got older and the, you know, the Olympics raises the stakes, that def I started to put my guard up a little bit more. Um, also, many of my teammates were a lot older than I was, so I think I felt a natural kind of not quite being in the same life stage and not quite knowing how to talk to them. Um, and also just feeling like there is a certain degree of a you know protective bubble that you do have to put around yourself because you know you're you're sort of vying for your own success in some cases at the expense of theirs were you able to turn to your parents or was that another level of i don't want to let them down or let them know that i'm hurting or in this vulnerable place so i think i i was pretty good or or pretty vocal about asking for their emotional support when I was struggling with fencing. Um, so I would come back from a tournament or sometimes my, you know, it would be at the tournament. Uh, my mom would often travel with me uh, until like I was about 20, 21. And, um, you know, I would, I would sort of lose it, you know, if I like had a really tough match or something like that. And they would support me in, in that regard. And I would, let them know that I was upset. But in it, the other part of my life, like the sort of sexual performance anxiety issue that I was dealing with, that was not something that I really talked about with them or in the very few instances that I did. Um, I sort of like began to broach the topic and it felt really weird and I just sort of receded back into my shell and it became something that I just locked away in a box and, you know, was like, okay, well, I guess I, you know, that confirms my fear that I can't talk about this because, you know, I'm going to be made to feel even worse than I already There's do. so much stigma around men and sexuality and performance. I just, I imagine <clears throat> it's, it's like women with orgasms or something. I just imagine that it's, it's got to be tough to find someone that, as you're talking, won't feel threatened themselves by what you're saying. 100% and you know the the few instances when I did sort of crack that wall open you know and I was like eh, I'm kind of struggling with this a little bit and then it would you get the uh, you know like the like oh, I don't know what to tell you I don't know what to tell you man sorry about that that's not me that's not me that's your problem I'm hard as a rock right now exactly exactly I mean there is this like cultural perception that men like literally have to like walk around with like a yeah you know, like a, uh, like a wrench between their legs or something like right. that. And, um, yeah. So deviating from that in any way, like, you know, I just, none of my friends were like, Hey man, like, yeah, my, I struggle with this stuff or like, you know, I've had some awkward experiences or, 
you know what? I'm sorry that happened to you, like, or that you're feeling that way. Like, I no, no, I don't judge my friends for that or my teammates for that. Um, the the very few that I did talk to about it, because they're working from the same cultural programming that that I was. So, you know, I just that's I guess maybe why I talk about it now because I want to as much as we can like start to deprogram, help deprogram that out of men or unlearn it. Maybe is a better word. How did you get to the other side of it? You know, it was, it was, I kind of got shoved to the other side of it. I, I, I will take a lot of credit for realizing that I was in a pretty dark place after my second Olympic Games in 2008, because I had basically more or less achieved like everything that I wanted to achieve. Like my three teammates and I won a silver medal in Beijing. And after just this like ridiculously emotional day of, you know, winning multiple matches by the slimmest of margin and, um, having it be kind of like a, a reverse image of, of what had happened to us in Athens where we had come very close to meddling but did not. And um, yeah, I, I kind of, I, there's a very different experience that happens at the Olympics when you win a medal because many doors open up for you that previously weren't open. You're invited to events, you're invited to galas, you're sort of seen as a temporary celebrity, you know, uh, unless you know, except for the, those that are actual celebrities like Michael Phelps and Simone Biles. And so I was like, kind of tasted what that felt like. And it was like everything I, I thought I wanted. And yet I was like really miserable. You know, there was a layer of like stimulation and excitement on top. And then there was like just, you know, deep <laughs> sadness <laughs> underneath yeah. because I was like, oh my God, I've been working for, you know, more than a decade to achieve this and now that I have it I don't feel any different I don't feel like I still feel like I'm not enough and <laughs> nothing like an existential crisis in your 20s exactly oh yeah <laughs> I mean everyone has them but this was like this was like such a sharp piercing realization that I had I was like oh my god like is this like okay like it just brought into perspective that achievement is not how you find that that self of that sense of self and identity and so yeah I like started to ask that question more pointedly in an action-oriented way like what can I do and I started talking to people like I talked to my dad finally in a meaningful way about it and my dad was like oh I wish you would have told me this like 10 years ago because I struggled with this too when I was younger you know and my dad was married before he met my mom he's like you know, there was a period after, you know, I ended my first relationship that I was just like really struggling with this. And I was like, oh my God, if I, if I would have had this kind of mirror to, to reflect this kind of stuff back at me when I was younger, I think like I could have probably avoided like 75% of the shame, you know, and the shame is ultimately the most corrosive emotion. And it feeds into itself. Right. Yeah. It becomes a perpetual cycle. Yeah. And I like started to, you know, like, um, get professional help, you know, engage meaningfully in relationships, not kind of like this weird dip your toe in and see if things are going to explode. And then if they do just run away, which is basically my general approach to relationships before that. Um, yeah. And slowly over time, you know, a period of probably three or four years, like things kind of started to mend themselves. And then from there, you know, it's not like it was fixed. It was a constant, um, you know, gardening process of just like 
finding new resources, reading new books, like trying to deepen intimacy with my partner. Um, eventually, like I ended up seeing like a, like a medical doctor that helped me figure out there was some kind of hormonal component that was probably playing a factor. Yeah, and you just kind of like, I just sort of worked my way through all of it rather than running away from it, I guess. I think that's a big thing too, that fact, <coughs> excuse me, that people, people don't realize what a complicated mechanism we are. And just a tiny, tiny imbalance in one direction or another can set a whole chain of events that might not be favorable for ourselves, you know? And as far as functioning and all the aspects that we are supposed to be functioning as a fully operational robot, you know? <laughs> totally. One bad <laughs> event, and I think many people have memories of these types of events, often in our early age, if, you, if your interpretation of events is particularly negative or um, you ascribe blame to yourself where you shouldn't, you like it fragments who you are and it's like you're like going through life everybody that w that knows about the event that <laughs> occurred is like like oh that probably wasn't a big deal for that person and then here you are like veering off on some other path thinking that this thing was the the worst thing that could have happened to you and it's not until you start talking to people and correcting your thoughts and assumptions about like what actually happened, who was responsible, how I should actually feel about it, that you begin to return to reality and might actually be some <laughs> organic sent, you know, version of yourself. Yeah, that was a hard one lesson is realizing that firstly, most people don't even think about you. <laughs> You're like sitting yep. there obsessing over something you've said or done or look like or felt or whatever. And the other people or person didn't even notice. And you've gone off into, you know, the wonderful world of, I'm the worst ever. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> like we are like narcissistic Narcissist, beings, yes, you know, totally like sad. as much as we'd like to think that we aren't <laughs> and there are some that are more than others, but right. even self-loathing is a narcissistic act because it puts you at the center of your universe and, you know, you, we get energy from that. It's not good energy, but we get energy from it nonetheless. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, it feels comforting to be in a state that we recognize. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to wear that than to have that shift the way we think and, and maybe try something, you know, dip our toe, as you said, in the sea of feeling good about ourselves. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's that other side of the coin where people are told, oh, if you feel too good about yourselves, you're an asshole. So where's the balance? Yeah, it's a constant balancing act. But I think, you know, that initial, it's it's so counterintuitive because you're like, of course, I should love myself, right? Like, because it's like, that makes complete sense. But it's also, you know, it's a it's a, often a sea change from the way that we view ourselves, you know, because just to a certain degree, being self-critical actually breeds change, right? It's like, oh, like, I should do this or I should do that. But it's when you, that, that, like laser beam gets like real hot and strong that it starts to be unhelpful and you can't see to the other side of being like oh maybe i should be nicer to myself or maybe i should give myself you know like a break about the fact that i wasn't my 100 percent best self in that in that moment but it's hard because those are patterns you know the, yeah. the same way that like you know, muscles learn how to perform movements like the brain learns how to repeat thought patterns. And 
we you know like it's not like we can untrain our muscles that easily it's a hard thing to push through it really is it takes and even when you can push through it and you do push through it it's still easy to falter Mm -hmm. and go back to the familiar totally yeah it's wild you know this thought just occurred to me i don't think do people ever talk bad about themselves in dreams that's a good question i mean I know that other, like, you have things acted upon you in a dream and everything in the dream is you, but but an actual, literal, you're in the person in the dream thinking, I'm a piece of shit, or whatever. I don't think that happens. Maybe, like, symbolically, you know, someone's giving you a critique and that person is representative of yourself. Right, because, yeah, but I mean self, self, self. The self being, the, the part of self is being played by you today. You know, yeah. that, not the part of you being played by, you know, your uncle or your schoolmate or something like that oh, that's a great question i don't know maybe you just unlock the key it's like dream therapy yeah you maybe. Know? it's like just live in your dream and, <laughs> you know this is a dream by the way oh great yeah well it is it a always, simulation yeah probably so yeah what, when you watch the olympics now is does that cause anxiety or are you able to chill out and relax into it uh a little it's a little bit of both mm-hmm. i think um I thought going into this Olympics in particular that I was far enough out and I've done so much work and I've written about my experiences, you know, pretty extensively. And um, so I was like, ah, I'm going to just like glide my way through this one. You know, I'm going to be like the sort of elder statesperson pontificating about what it all means and whatever. And I was pretty triggered, honestly, by a couple of things. One was watching some of the other American athletes have a difficult games. Um, you know, some of the guys that, that compete in my event, which is uh, men's saber, um, you know, were, were poised to do really well, and unfortunately things didn't, didn't go their way. And I remember in particular one of them, I could hear uh, the microphones on, in the arena were still hot, and I could hear him talking to his coach, and he was so distressed about losing uh, in one of the earlier rounds. And I just it took me right back to... Oof my first Olympics losing to a veteran Italian fencer, like as bad as you can lose to somebody and just like literally losing my mind. You know, like I remember going back through the sort of tunnel to the practice room and NBC reporter stuck a microphone in my face. I have no recollection of that exchange except for that a microphone was in my face. I was trying to hold it together, threw all my equipment off, found my mom, was in a back dark like alleyway in Athens. I literally like had the most explosive cry that I think I've ever had in my entire life. Um, and I don't know what events followed his, you know, the ones that I'm describing, but it, he was teetering on the precipice of something like that. And I just took me right back to that emotional place. And Dude. I... Can you reach out to people like that since you've been there to say, hey, man, I, I totally feel you. And I have, yeah, I have reached out to a couple of the athletes that I know better, um, you know, that, that I had that I competed with that are younger, but sort of we overlapped because I, you know, not that all I can really do is just be somebody that listens and maybe understands a little bit what they're going through. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's like, you know, those people need to ask for sure. other people to they need to invite people in. I don't want to you know poke and stick myself in places that I'm not necessarily welcome. Um, 
But otherwise, the other thing that triggered me for sure was the whole Simone Biles incident and the resulting sort of conversation, you know, both in the media and social media about whether she made the right decision or didn't make the right decision. And, um, you know, from my perspective, she was so, you know, such an amazing example of strength to absolutely step back and be like, hey, I'm not feeling right. Uh, I'm putting myself in danger. I'm potentially jeopardizing my teammates. Like, you know, I don't, I don't think I Which should. Which is the most leadership thing to do. It's, it's like the fact that, uh, I try and talk about this in a measured way, but the fact that you could have any interpretation besides that, it's, it really hurts me. To, you yeah. know, it, it makes me like really go like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, un- I don't understand how your interpretation could be any different. Um, and so, yeah, feeling, you know, feeling like a somehow peripheral to that conversation and, you know, with my own kind of struggle with, like, I guess, mental health issues throughout my career, but also preceding, during, and after the Olympic Games that I competed in, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe how callous and, um, you know, just not thoughtful some people are and they just fire off these kind of like projections about what they think people should and shouldn't do based on the fact that they quote unquote signed up to go to the Olympics. I'm just like, okay, I don't know what to tell you if that's what you think, but yeah. you know, I guess everyone's entitled to their Tweets opinion. The guy who is out of breath walking around his block, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> the Twitter trolls are just evil. Yeah. Right. Of course. And that's a, that's a, that's a dark place to go, you yeah. know, just in general, because it's not even about Simone Biles. It no. becomes just about creating, being inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory sure, sure. and what motivates that, who knows? But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess just, I think that the number, like, there was three distinct aspects about her decision that I just feel like, even though they were vocalized by her, maybe not as clearly as they could have been, but, like, I just, with those combination of things, for you to not be able to conclude that that was a really cool thing is was ridiculous one i mentioned which is that like she was literally putting herself in danger right me as a fencer i'm not really putting myself in danger by continuing you know so like that the fact that she was able to vocalize that and and make a decision based on that is incredible maturity the second is that she felt like she was going to compromise a medal for her teammates you know like that's leadership as you said but the third is that people i think people think that she just like made this decision like as if it was Cavalier, like, right. oh, I don't feel like it. And it's like, do you understand that Simone Biles, her entire life is gymnastics. She's waited five additional years from her first games, basically sacrificed the ability to figure out who she really is and how she wants to navigate the world as a person and just discover her own identity. She's put all that on hold so that she can be a gymnast and deal with injuries and pressures and the sort of. And be the best GD gymnast, you know? Right. That- Totally. She's, but this for her... That there are was, things named after her. She's so good. <laughs> exactly. And and, and that the idea hmm. that she wouldn't have factored in like this enormous sacrifice that she's made. This That's a huge sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, she's put more skin in the game you can possibly imagine. And making that decision is even harder because of that. And it was like, I just couldn't believe that people were like, you know, like you just... You, you you have to a real champion always perseveres and it's like okay I don't 
that's that programming that you're yeah, talking about exactly that's that toxic it doesn't have to be masculine it's just a toxic environment that is the culture of humanity totally yeah and then i think we have i mean part of it was inflamed by or i guess exacerbated by the fact that you know social media is now driven by opposition and antagonism and so everybody's hot take was trying to be increasingly you know like provocative and all of a sudden we end up in this weird echo chamber where people are shouting at each other with really extreme views and it's like oh my god like i can't believe that this is supposedly a constructive conversation yeah do you still fence i don't right now um i did so after the olympics when i decided to retire it was actually a couple of years after the olympics because i was initially thinking i might try and go for a third um and decided that was a very bad idea for a lot of the reasons we've talked about already it was just like i got to do work on myself i got to figure out who i am um and i had a clean break with fencing i didn't fence i didn't pick up a saber really for six years wow um i put my equipment in my bag zipped it up literally <laughs> left it in a you know i don't know my parents attic or something like that and then when I was living in London and it was like around the time of the 2016 games and I was kind of like started to get an inkling that oh, maybe like I was missing, I was probably feeling a bit of drift in my career and I wanted, I wanted to connect with something that felt really familiar, both from a skill set standpoint and a community standpoint. So I started fencing a little bit then um, and then moved back to LA um, with my now wife and got to be back like in my original environment with Daniel and his club and his son was um, at the time fencing at a pretty high level and needed a training partner so I fenced with him for about a year and a half on and off um, but then I was like you know what I just like surfing better <laughs> so now I spend pretty much all my free time that I dedicate to like fitness doing surfing stuff surfing related stuff that's fun yeah I, I'm terrified to surf it's so fun though I mean, I'm it's, sure it looks incredible I love to watch it but I think I would that scares me <laughs> I mean there in fairness there are a lot of things to be afraid of you yeah. know the ocean is this uncontrollable force you know there's which is why people surf which is why people surf yeah yeah um, and yeah I got to spend like five months in Hawaii this this last year um, so that so you know brought additional connection with it are you wanting to do it competitively or for just for fun, for your spirit? Definitely for fun. Yeah. I, I know better than to try and compete because it'll take all the joy out of it yeah, for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I still have to be very conscientious to like not engage that uh, part of my brain that I, that I can engage sometimes, which is like, I got to be as good as I possibly can at this and just sort of breaking things down into all of its component parts so that you can put it back together again and make some tiny marginal gain because um, it's it's very effortful and it takes a lot of time and energy and it taxes your sort of like i don't know it taxes the joy factor i think mm. how did you when you met your wife to be before you obviously were married to her how did you get uh, get around your gatekeepers in your brain in the in what regard in the sort of like letting go to let god as they say to, mm. to let things play out you know to to let to let her in to let the person you know that tells you how everything's going to go wrong or that you shouldn't trust someone or you know all the stuff 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I think like, so I was living in London at the time working for an advertising agency and she, unbeknownst to me at the time, worked at the same agency in the Amsterdam office. She's originally from Stockholm and had sort of been working there for a couple of years. And I got sent over to work on a project and I, we met within the first five or 10 minutes of me coming to work, you know, that first day. And I was like, who is this person? Because I don't know what it is about you and your energy, but I like couldn't like take my eyes off her or something. And unbeknownst to me also, I guess she was feeling similarly and she uh, claims that she sent an email around to like some of her female co-workers that she was like claiming dibs or something <laughs> Hilarious. on me uh, and which, which if I would have known at the time she's got the elephant gun <laughs> tags yeah. you in the ear <laughs> totally if I would have known at the time I would have been so excited but um, she proceeded to like invite me to lunch with a bunch of other people as if that was a regular thing which it was not so she kind of orchestrated this faux group lunch that was really about us getting to spend a little time together and basically after that I like her yeah she's, <laughs> she's definitely she you know she's an eye on the prize kind of person um, but I don't know how to explain it beyond the environment that was um, just a byproduct of the fact that I was there for a short period of time the fact that we very quickly connected because it was within like a week or something like that we were we had transcended the, you know, sort of like employee-colleague relationship. And I don't know. It just, like, everything felt so natural. I had never been able to let anybody in that way. And, like, all these, like, seemingly really challenging decisions or, like, walls that you think of as being, like, taking relationships to the next level. Like, like, like hey, I want to... I really like you or I really want to spend more time with you or like hey like are, are we going to be is this a thing like are we now a thing to like saying I love you to in my case like deciding to finagle my way onto some other project that you know uh, allowed me to basically stay in Amsterdam for another six or eight weeks just to have more time for us not because I wanted to work on the project um all those things were just like, I didn't even think about them. It was like, I, I thought about them, obviously, but I didn't, I didn't think about them with the gremlins that normally sit on my shoulder and are like, you know, whispering, you know, unhelpful things in my ear. And I think we just moved at such a quick velocity that um, I almost like they couldn't catch up. <laughs> and by the time we you know, we're at a point where I had to go back to London. Um, we were, we were pretty solid and knew where we were trying to go. So it was like a few months of me going there and her coming to London. And then she, she was ready actually to move on from her job there and just move to London. It was like, Oh, okay, here we go. Six months later, like we're doing this. Um, wow. so it was, it was magical in that regard. I'm so grateful that it happened that way. Cause at one point in time, in my life, I never thought that would happen. You know, I was just like, well, I guess I'm just one of those people that's gonna sort of drift through life solo and, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, it's more like I wanted something else and it was more that I felt like there was something that, something with me that would prevent that. And it's sort of that kind of melted and that was really nice. Isn't that interesting to think, you know, kid, 
kid in LA, grows up, does all this stuff, and you end up in this obscure moment, and there she is. 100%. That's wacky and, and great and makes you wonder, you know? And not only that, but like, we also talk about the fact that if we would have met at different stages in our lives, like, it probably wouldn't have clicked. It wouldn't yeah. have worked. And so it's like, you know, timing and lighting, you know, it's like mm-hmm. all kind of, I guess that's the mysticism of it. I don't know. I don't uh, know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what got you started with the writing and the decision to do the mandate letters? Yeah, so Which it was... Which is a great name, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I started thinking about writing around the time of the 2016 games, which was also when I was thinking about fencing again, because I saw some of my old teammates competing, and I just felt like, I don't know, like there's something there's some something unfinished here. I don't know what it is, like, and I want to explore that. And I had also... Um, prior to that thought about like you know I I liked my career at that point I mean advertising is a very creative industry like you know it's I was very blessed and I was on a great trajectory Um, but I just wasn't something wasn't quite feeling right to me and yeah I I had done some writing in the past nothing of any note really Um, and I basically kind of started what later became a memoir project where I initially kind of was writing about the Olympics through the lens of dealing with performance anxiety in sport. And then it was a, at a certain point, my, my wife, Martina, was like, hey, maybe you should write about that other stuff. And I was like, no way. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and then I came around and realized that that was actually what I had to do, you know, whether I wanted to or not, because it was, you know, like... A, not only a way of processing my own experiences, but it was where, that, I mean, that is that was my story, you know? Like, that's what impacted me throughout all those years, and it was the thing that I had to share. Um, and so I continued writing about it and, you know, working on a manuscript and, you know, trying to figure out if I could get a book like that into the world. And, um, and then I wrote an article about it for Men's Health um, as part of one of those kind of stepping stones and that really was what kind of sent me off on this different trajectory of doing, I guess, kind of like first-person um, experiential essays and features about things concerning masculinity. In particular, I've been writing about men's groups a lot. Um, and the Mandate Letter is just another manifestation of me putting my thoughts together about you know, where are we going on this masculinity rocket ship? You know, what are all the types of, like, expressions of masculinities and, you know, what kind of representation do we need and how do we need to kind of get men to unlearn certain aspects of, you know, sort of masculinity culture, quote-unquote. Um, and, yeah, the, the book that I was working on remains in a drawer and my literary agent and I are going to, you know, pursue that at the right time. But right now I'm just kind of, I feel like I'm, I've grabbed this thread of the sweater and I'm just pulling at it as hard as I can because it feels, um, I'm exploring, I'm learning, I'm enjoying it. The work seems to be, you know, 
being well received and hopefully impacting you're an excellent writer oh thank you having read a couple of the articles or would you call them articles i mean i know they're essays having read a couple of this articles stories i don't know what quite the right word is like you know the mandate letter is more um you know sort of all over the place in terms of format some are interviews some are just sort of like you know thoughts some are you know sort of like uh i don't know meditations on something but my work for men's health i've probably written a half a dozen or more things for them those are you know either those are much a lot more goes into those you know in some cases those are like two or three month projects and um so those are like articles features Mm -hmm. essays how are those things being received for example the article you wrote about um sexual journey and the article about uh, it looks like you're writing like you said a lot of trying to have men sort of consider that the story they've been told maybe isn't the one that they should keep listening to Mm -hmm. that's got to be challenging for a lot of people yeah it is and you know the first essay that i wrote and that's the one i was referring to the kind of like you know brief summation of of my kind of story these like two separate lives right the one where i was the sort of you know uh insecure uncertain you know person in sex intimacy and relationships combined with you know the presentation of myself as a young confident athlete olympian specifically um that piece was you know really well received i mean i'm sure there were some conspicuous silences from people in my you know, world, but very, very few. I think the lion's share of people that did react, reacted in a way that were like, wow, this is really cool. You know, like, we need more people saying stuff like this because this is, I mean, just this, the statistics on sex, sexual performance, anxiety, erectile dysfunction among men is like absolutely absurd. You know, like, it's it's the reason that businesses like Roman and Hymns, which if you're familiar, they're telemedicine businesses that help men get the little blue pills and yeah stuff. exactly isn't that interesting too we are the world it's not just america the society that if there's something wrong instead of finding out what might be the underlying cause we just say take this pill and ignore everything else you'll be fine totally yeah absolutely i mean we have a commercial uh incentive to pharmaceuticalize everything and, um, and what is strange, I, I have to interject, is the idea that you were in advertising and your full-on job was to convince people they maybe need things that they don't need or that they're not good enough and that this will make them better or, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes along the lines of what advertising represents. Yeah, it's another strange tension in my story, I think, is that, you know, I understand pretty in a pretty detailed way, like how those types of campaigns come to be. And I've never worked on anything that was, in my opinion, outright harmful. Um, but, you know, I've worked in like, I don't know, consumer products, mayonnaise, for example, right? And you're like, you know, do we need everyone in the world to eat more mayonnaise? Like, I mean, if you like mayonnaise, great. But like, we don't need to force it down people's throat necessarily. Um but it gives me perspective on it gives me perspective on I told you they were going to be they were going to come up um it gives me perspective on on the the power of advertising as a cultural vessel and it's partially why I I think that you know men's perspective about masculinity comes from 
initially the immediate people around them, in most cases men, brothers, fathers, uncles, teachers, coaches, mentors, etc. But the sort of, you know, that incubating sort of uh, stuff around that is movies, books, you know, toys, advertising, and that stuff, like, you know, uh, we could probably do better, you know, in terms of, like, not perpetuating certain kinds of stereotypes that ultimately are harmful to everyone, not just men. Sure. Uh, we are a closed system onto each other, so men and women, we operate together regardless of our gender, our identity, our sex, or whatever. It doesn't not, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that human beings have to get over is the idea that we are separate in any way. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, in the work that I'm doing now, like, you know, the, the term, like, the patriarchy kind of comes up frequently, right? It's the sort of systems of power or the structure in which we all live that, like, where men have kind of... Uh, uh, systematically over the years asserted their kind of dominance and it's like oh well that's really bad for women you know and and so men are not incentivized to like change that system because you know they benefit from it and one of the things that is so interesting is that they don't benefit from it you know it hurts everybody right everybody is a victim of this kind of like unbalanced system and a lot of these things that we've been talking about like men policing certain kinds of um sort of behavioral necessities on each other and men constantly competing for status, like all that's a product of the patriarchy. So to that extent, it is a closed loop system. We're all in it. It's all it's the water that we swim in, to use the phrase I used before. And, you know, we could probably do for a better system. Yeah, let's hope so. I appreciate that you're trying. As yeah. am I. I mean, I, this work is the same. It's trying to, to, to show how similar we are. And that you can exist in a world where men open your door if you want that and cry watching a movie with you if you mm -hmm. want that. I don't know where that that separation... Did you, do you remember the uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch from way back? Mm -hmm. It was a musical. Mm -hmm. I just remember this... The, it was part cartoon, part musical. It was really well done. But I remember this, this cartoon about the separation when men and women used to be one being and then it was severed. And we spend our whole lives trying to find that, that other half. Mm. And I find it interesting because in that, it's referring to a whole other person. But I think in the truth of it is it's us. We're trying to find that other half of ourselves that we have denied or turned our back on or, you know, are scared of or whatever it is. That, that's the whole the male and female working together. Mm -hmm. Not penis vagina, but male, female, energetic thing totally totally and it's like there are all these human qualities that on some level we all have within us you know some are stronger than others and we tend to lean towards others because we've either been you know gotten positive feedback or right. negative feedback to, to avoid certain kind of things that other people like, or like don't express that like you know be more this than that and you know i'm borrowing ideas from other people in saying this but like you know, oftentimes we like gender those qualities, you oh, know, we, sure. we say like, oh, being aggressive and assertive is masculine, right? And being creative and spontaneous is feminine, right? But the reality is those are all human characteristics. And so to some extent, like even saying that those are on some kind of, you know, one side of the net and others are on the other is like kind of problematic. 
especially because men are sort of anti-feminine in stance in general, right? We need integration of all those things. And for a person to be the highest, most integrated expression of themselves, like they need to just pick from that garden all the things that are really representative of who they are, whether or not they're masculine or feminine or whatever culture tells them they should or shouldn't be. Yeah. That'll be the day, huh? That'll be the day for sure. Yeah. Uh, before you came over, I was just perusing the mandate letters again, and uh, uh, there was a thing about the rings, the tattoo that mm-hmm. you got. Mm-hmm. And it struck me, a long time ago, I interviewed a guy who has been, he's a heart transplant re- recipient. He was a first responder. His name is Jeff. It's a great interview. Great, great guy. And he got his third heart because he got sick with the first heart because he was a first responder in 9-11, got sick. They had to give him a new heart. That heart failed, as they often do. And now he's on his third heart. And I said to him in the conversation, do you want to meet the family that you've received the heart from? And he said, I don't know that I'm worthy. Hmm. And that was it was a lot to hear that because i thought my god if anybody's freaking worthy it's this guy you know he's run into burning buildings trying to save people's lives he's represented and protected presidents he's you know if not that guy then who and then uh, hearing that echoing in your your article about how you felt about getting a tattoo that i i from what i've ascertained from you is a lot of olympians get can we dig into that just real quick yeah definitely i think um, yeah, so it's very common for Olympians of all descriptions to go sometimes before, but mostly after the games and, and, and put the rings, which is some sort of like representative of um, the process and the event and the importance of this thing that has kind of loomed over their lives. And for me, like I... Um, especially after my first Olympics, which had gone sort of, in my mind, what I judged as catastrophically. Um, I was like, I don't, this doesn't, I don't, it doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I can put these, this representation on my body because exactly like the man you're describing, like I didn't feel worthy of it. I didn't feel, I felt like I had let everybody down. You know, I had sort of like, uh, showed the promise of possibly being able to, you know, I don't know, be quote-unquote great, and then I had sort of, uh, I don't know, shit the bed or whatever the right expression is. And and that's not a fair characterization of my performance there, but it's what I thought. Um, and so I carried that with me for a long time, and even after the 2008 games, which had gone measurably better, um, I don't know why, I just still was kind of like, nah, I don't, I don't know. And later it became clear that it was because, you know, in general there was a hole in me around not feeling like I was enough and it had a lot to do with learning to love all aspects of myself, even the kind of shortcomings that I felt like I had in the bedroom. And when I kind of was able to heal that, the idea began to form in my mind, like, oh, like, Maybe there's a reclamation in taking back that symbol, you know, as something that I should be proud of, you know, because really what that symbolizes to me is that it's like the putting your mind to something, to overcoming obstacles, to um, 
loving something enough to even have that ambition in the first place and so yeah i just like decided like you know what like i don't care 12 years later 13 years later if you count the extra year for covid like actually wait 17 years later um if you if we're going back to athens um like i'm gonna just do that because that means something to me and it like brings some level of closure and um in the same way that writing about my experiences has and yeah i want to look back on that period and i want to be proud of it and i want to understand that all the things that didn't feel good at that time somehow brought me to this point where i am now um and delivered me to you know like the opportunities that i have to like try and say interesting meaningful stuff about what happened to me and what i hope won't happen to other guys in the world mm. <clears throat> a full circles moment <laughs> i had to do it that was good <laughs> that was a good one that's really beautiful how empowering of a moment to, i we, that must have been emotional it was i mean i it's funny because like on the masculinity front like where i need to be where where i still have a lot of work to do is letting in emotion and feeling it and expressing expressing it and not processing it um through the old channels that i used to which is often geared towards like like oh i'm feeling something this isn't helping me perform optimally i'll i'll, I'll deal with that later like a cataloging system <laughs> yeah so on some level it was because i've made a lot of strides in kind of like deprogramming that kind of emotional control but on a, on the other hand like you know what emotion i did feel like sort of like shunted off into you know these reservoirs in my brain where i hold that stuff um and so it seeped in kind of later it wasn't in the moment you know like getting the tattoo for example it was more in writing about the experience i think that's i process my a lot of my emotion through writing and probably why i'm doing what i'm doing now and because i'm able to think about it in a way that helps me just really understand like what the experience was and what it meant to me and um yeah it's um so yeah i don't know if it was like emotional in the traditional sense but it was emotional in the peripheral ambient sense yeah it's really beautiful how can people find you jason um thank you for asking that i i mean all of my work i guess is on men's health um you can sort of track me down there i as we talked about earlier um i write the mandate letter which is like a sort of weekly-ish bi-monthly newsletter about a lot of this stuff we talked about masculinity um and that's at the mandate letter or excuse me mandate com, or just google the mandate letter. i can put links to you on hey oh, human podcast yeah. there's a links page so yeah and then i'm on social media you know in the typical places yeah twitter instagram etc i'll make sure all that information is uh easy to find for everybody that's listening thank you so much this has been wonderful thank you for having me really, really great conversation talking about it yeah thanks for listening everybody bye rate and review hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts thanks bye